1: Welcome to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Bierma. It rose against the Texas sun in all its architectural audacity, a domed stadium big enough to cover a baseball field. When it opened in 1965, the Houston Astrodome defied engineering precedent and forever changed professional sports, although its legacy today is mixed and its future remains uncertain. Bob Trumpur and Kenneth Womack tell the story of this gigantic building and the Texas-sized vision of the man who dreamed it into being, Roy Hofheinz, in their book, The Eighth Wonder of the World, The Life of Houston's Iconic Astrodome, published by University of Nebraska Press. In 2017, the book won the Seymour Medal as the year's best book of baseball history or biography from the Society for American Baseball Research. I talked with Trumpur about what made the Astrodome a game-changer and why its story is still unfolding i'm joined now by bob trump co-author of the eighth wonder of the world bob welcome thanks for joining me it's great to be here so your previous work has been your kind of ongoing lifelong work has been on stadiums and politics can you tell us a bit about your background and how you set your sights on the astrodome
0: you know the reason for the astrodome is i was i was looking at transformative uh stadiums and arenas and ballparks and that one was a real game changer, and you know my co-author Ken Womack, uh, you know who's the, who's the dean at uh, Monmouth University in New Jersey, he uh, he grew up with it, uh, with the Astrodome. His his grandfather Ken Zimmerman was the structural engineer of the Astrodome, so so as he, you know as he was growing up, he was brought to the Astrodome quite a bit, and he you know he got to see a lot of the the plans and. You know, got to talk about, you know, the engineering of the Astrodome with his his grandfather quite a bit. Uh, So it was just a nice fit for me because I've been pretty passionate about, you know, stadium construction, the politics behind it, how these things get built. And Ken, it was was basically part of Ken's DNA that, uh, you know, the Astrodome was part of it.
1: Had you been in the Astrodome when it was still in use, and and how much differently did you view the building, uh, as opposed to Ken, who had that personal experience with it growing up?
0: You know what I I, I was in it in the eighties, and you know, very early eighties. And I, I honestly, uh, I you know I I remember as as a young kid, the Astrodome being this this sort of legendary facility that that you know sort of you know i just remember with astro turf and with the indoor and the padded seats and all that sort of thing it being sort of you know a big marvel when i was when i was a youngster and you know by then it was a little bit old and getting a little rough around the edges but it was still it still had a, a bit of a legend to it
1: well and not only was it a remarkable building in its own right and we'll talk about the building specifically but you write about how it put Houston on the map. It had a major role in Houston's transformation, its public image, as a major U.S. and world metropolitan city. Uh, the three sections of your book are called Cowtown, Dometown, and Space City, and you trace the progression of Houston itself across those three phases. Uh, can you explain how important it was to Houston to get this building built and what it meant for Houston to, to have it be built?
0: Well, for you. For Houston, they wanted to be a major league city, and they were—they were a big city. They—they they were, you know, they were moving up as far as population growth and all that sort of thing, but they did not have a major league team. Um, and you know, eventually they got the Houston Oilers, and then they got the Colt Forty-Fives, which became the Astros. Uh, but they—they they, they really needed to have—they uh, needed to have a ballpark that was—that was, you know special and actually indoors because of houston's oppressive summer weather uh, i i know uh, you know when this when the colt 45s played outdoors i remember sandy koufax said uh you know of the size of the mosquitoes that some of them are twin engine jobs they were so big you know so you know the, the mosquitoes were pretty unforgiving the weather was oppressively hot and humid so you know, having the astrodome allowed uh, you know, allowed them to have an indoor facility that could house a, a professional baseball team and if you remember in the early '60s baseball was actually and, and it probably seems quaint and odd today, but baseball was, had had a greater level of of popularity and cultural currency than than football, uh, and if you remember that you you know you go back to the 60s, the A you know the AFL, which you know is now the AFC and the National Football League, was actually the sort of poor you know stepchild to the NFL, which was you know the major markets in the Northeast and the Midwest. Uh, so. You know, Houston wanted to be major league, wanted to really be on the map, and having a world-class facility is, is one of the major factors that allowed them to attract a major league franchise in baseball.
1: And the person behind this, or one of the key figures behind both the effort to get a Major League Baseball team in Houston and to build the Dome itself, is Judge Roy Hofheinz, who comes across as a larger-than-life figure, sort of a classic uh, larger-than-life Texan, uh, a friend and confidant of Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, Hofheinz was a a politician, an orator, a businessman. Um, introduce us to Roy Hofheinz, and you, your book kind of suggests that it took someone like him, uh, as big a personality as him, to get this done, to build a building as as big and remarkable as the Astrodome.
0: Yeah, he was a real go-getter. I mean, he was one of these people who you know was looked at as, as an up-and-comer. You know, he may have, if he had decided he wanted to run for governor of Texas, he, there's a pretty good chance he might have gotten it. Uh, he you know he, but he he was someone who was an entrepreneur a capitalist a lawyer he was a legislator he was a, he was mayor of Houston for for a while as well uh, and you know as a result of that he was able to bring all the pieces together to get the astrodome done uh he was actually exploring the possibility of getting uh, putting putting in a shopping mall in houston and he, he lost out uh... he lost out to you know a guy named sharp who who created what was called Sharpstown, which was the first indoor mall in houston and uh... after he lost out on that uh, he he decided he you know he had some time to allocate to other things and and it dovetailed very nicely with george kirksey pushing hard to get a major league baseball team for houston and Hoffheins said you know he'd take the lead on the on getting a dome built and uh really ran with it and and did a heck of a lot to get it done so George Kirksey was probably a bigger figure in terms of getting Houston a major league team, but it wouldn't have happened with, without Roy Hoffheinz, who was you know quite frankly was this this major personality he was sort of a larger than life figure um you know, I know some people have sort of compared him to Rune Arledge, the uh, you know, president of uh, ABC Sports, later the president of ABC News, uh, you know, who, who sort of, they both sort of envisioned how important visual communication was. And, and Hofheinz sort of ex- exploited that by having this huge, massive scoreboard that was bigger than anything else Ever built before, and you know, Arledge did it by by creating, uh, you know, sports productions that were that were uniquely personal and that had had sort of visual elements that that other things did not have. So, you know, again, uh, he was a transformative person in terms of uh, not only Houston but uh, you know, stadium building in general.
1: Both Hofheinz and Arled seem to be thinking 10 or 20 years ahead of everyone else and seem to arrive where everyone else would be going, or, or set the course for where everybody else would go. Uh, you write about Hofheinz visiting the Roman Colosseum for inspiration, and uh, I think didn't he later uh, compare the Astrodome more favorably to the Colosseum, saying uh, he achieved some things with the Astrodome that the ancient Romans didn't?
0: Yeah, he was proud of the fact that he could he could put a permanent roof over the dome the romans had this temporary uh you know this temporary fabric st- you know st- structure that they would they would raise above on the hottest days and uh he was pretty proud of the fact that he was able to do that and it was something that uh the romans were unable to do uh he also liked the uh you know, he also, you know, liked the thought of having skyboxes. You know, almost, you know, as though, you know, think about the Roman emperor overlooking the empire and, you know, the vastness of of you know Rome's entertainment, and you know, he thought, you know, the wealthy and the affluent would pay for these skyboxes, and it could help fund the Astrodome, and that was something that that he foresaw that other builders really that other people really didn't see that actually the bill you know the building contractors that you know and and the other folks involved didn't necessarily see skyboxes as the future uh, they were looking at, uh, you know, just putting ductwork and wires and that sort of thing along that perimeter. And, and Hoffman was, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to put these skyboxes up here, and they're, they're going to be a big seller, and they're going to be popular. And, and that, was, that was somewhat revolutionary. It, he wasn't the first to have, you know, sort of, you know, a luxury suite in a ballpark or a stadium. But he was the first one to envision it on a grand scale.
1: One other note about Hofheinz, you write how he was relatively progressive, I guess somewhat like his friend Lyndon Johnson, uh, when it came to civil rights and racial equality. As mayor of Houston, he had rather quietly integrated public spaces in the city, which was not, I guess this is late 50s, not easy to do and not easy to do quietly. And he also courted the African-American vote when it came to supporting uh, public funding to to build the Astrodome um, and promising that the Astrodome would be integrated. So he was ahead in that respect too
0: yeah he really was I mean you know it's it's funny but before he became uh, the famous Roy Hoffites you know as a young kid in high school he used to you know he would organize these these amazing parties and he would get all these people to come and he you know he even did it when he was working you know when he was working toward his college degree and you know he would have these 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 massive parties in these grand ballrooms. He would rent them out, and you know he would have, you know he'd have he would have a, a band that was primarily white, and he would have a band that was African American, and they would you know they would both play, and they they would be you know it was an exposure. And you know, cross-cultural sort of exposure that a lot of cities didn't have at that time. So you know, he 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 was committed to that. When he was mayor, he did a lot of things. As an example, you know, just getting roads paved in in the the you know sections of the city where the minorities might be. So the, the minority community was behind Roy Hoffheintz. So when he wanted to build the when he wanted to build the the Astrodome. They were, they were ready to pony up and vote for it, and that helped him in the referendum. You know, if you had someone who, quite frankly, was not as, as open-minded and progressive as he, he was, he probably would have lost that segment of the vote, and it's hard to know if he would have gotten the, the funding for the Astrodome. So, so, you know, it's funny how sometimes, you know, treating people well actually, uh, you know, comes back uh, to your benefit.
1: All right, so that's Roy Hofheinz, this bold personality and whose bold vision it took to, uh, to make this idea happen. But it fell to Ken Zimmerman, the lead engineer, as you mentioned, to actually build the building and get it to stand up. Uh, you have a chapter that goes into the detail of the technical challenges that faced the team that was designing and constructing this facility. Can, can you give us a general sense of some of the technical challenges they faced and solved in order to actually get a dome like this to be built?
0: Zimmerman was a very creative architect, and he, he looked he looked at this as just a major, major project that that required sometimes unique solutions. So, you know, he came up with you know different types of columns. You know, he came up with, and if you think about it, if you're going to create a dome this big, you know, you you can't like a lot of structures just put beams in the middle because that's going to be the playing field. So. They had to come up with these massive trusses. They had to come up with, you know, things that were, you know, structurally sound enough to be able to handle the weight of, of this immense roof. And this was well before other ideas were done for indoor stadiums. So, you know, he had to pioneer a lot of these ideas and solutions. And, and you know, Ken Zimmerman was, was, you know, just an unbelievably creative architect. And you know if if uh, or engineer if if uh, you know I know when we were looking at uh, you know when we were at Walter P. Moore uh, they had the you know they had the founder of Walter P. Moore and a picture of Ken Zimmerman you know next to him and and uh, you know that was in their boardroom and you know that's how much regard that the uh, folks. That engineer at Walter P. Moore have, you know, and they've done, they've done dozens and dozens of stadiums throughout the world as far as engineering, but they looked at Ken Zimmerman as someone who was very, uh, you know, very cutting edge in the way he thought about things and very creative in how he thought about things.
1: I was struck, and I'm not an engineer, so uh, maybe this isn't as remarkable as it seemed to me, but, you know, my default thinking would be you got to build this building as as rigid and strong as possible so that it can stand up to anything. And you write about how the structure itself actually had to have a little flexibility, and you talk about knuckle columns. Can you explain why the building was better for not being rigid?
0: Well... you think about it, if you build something that is a hundred percent rigid, there's no give whatsoever. When wind, you know, when hit with with you know incredible winds and you know when the potential for wind shear, think about hurricane force winds. You know, and think about you know the, how Houston occasionally does get hit with hurricane force winds. The ability to give somewhat allows the structure. To actually survive you know think about how you know a lot of times you know trees that have have give to them can survive incredible you know wind Uh, whereas you know you look at these you know you look at as an example you know these houses that are built very rigidly with just you know wood and uh, that's it Uh, how they, they you know they come down very quickly and how you know a lot of these other commercial buildings will come down reasonably quickly because they're not they're not designed to give or you know to to move in any any way shape or form so by having the knuckle curve what it did is it allowed instead of being absolutely rigid and and just breaking it would bend a bit and allow for the building to flex as it was being buffeted by heavy winds, And it it allowed it to be able to survive hurricanes, you know, gale force and tornado winds that it it wouldn't have if you just made it a strictly rigid structure unless you use so much darn steel. It would have cost probably double the amount to, to put together. So engineering kind of solved the problem of, you know, of cost containment and and this was one of the creative ways Ken Zimmerman came up with to allow the astrodome to be as is as, as well designed as it is.
1: So it was an engineering triumph although there were minor problems in the first year or so including uh some leaks in the roof and was that related to those knuckle columns?
0: No, it really wasn't. It was basically, you know, the gaskets they had and there were there were some other things. I mean, they were they were working and You know, it's funny, I know now there are some universities, I know at Penn State they have a material sciences program where you work with, you know, sort of cutting-edge materials and you develop cutting-edge materials that will solve architectural and structural problems and, you know, they're used in aerospace and aviation and they're used in architecture. Honestly, these folks were, you know, trying to make, they were trying to use new, new uh, you know ingredients and and new components that that really hadn't been used in this capacity before so so you know in essence there was a lot of experimentation and and they were able to work through it but but th- there was a lot of trial and error in terms of you know making these things work so some of the leaks you know it, it was it, you know it was sort of Figuring out ways to make sure that the gaskets had, you know, some flex to them and wouldn't, you know, and and would be able to stand up as as water was, you know, hitting the dome. And there was a lot of creativity in terms of making this work.
1: One other thing I wanted to mention about the knuckle columns, you write about how there were certain, I guess, joints or certain aspects of the structure that were initially visible to fans that were unsettling because you could see some movement there and they had to cover them up and conceal them, uh, you write, because uh, you, you couldn't explain to fans, oh, don't worry, that's it's doing what it's supposed to, so they just had to conceal it all.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, but this is something that Ken, Ken knew firsthand. You know, as someone who was, you know, Ken Womack, my co-author, you know, as someone who who grew up in Houston and went to the Astrodome a lot. Uh you know, he, he 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 was aware of this, you know, but but people would see the building give a bit and move a bit as wind would, you know, buffet the dome. And that that would cause, you know, potential panic. So they would figure out ways to cover those areas that would move you know, in clever ways with you know flexible materials that that so that you wouldn't even notice the movement. But uh, you know, it's funny. I was I remember before the World Trade Center came down. I remember this the summer before it came down. I remember I have a, a brother-in-law who w- worked for the Port Authority at the time, and he was an architect for the Port Authority, and he brought me up there. And you could feel the sway, and it was interesting because he would say to me, "It's it's designed to give that way, and it 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 couldn't stand if you didn't give it that that flex of that flex." And uh, you know that's kind of what happened with the Astrodome.
1: All right, so structurally the Astrodome was sound and everything stood as sturdily or as flexibly as it needed to, Uh, but there were other problems. The most high profile problem, of course, was that uh, when the building first opened, the outfielders couldn't see fly balls. Why why was that, and, and what innovation did that lead to?
0: Well what they what happened is they used lucite panels that would allow the sun to come in and you know that was you know that was a technology that was put together by dupont but it it was strong and it was you know it was it was reasonably rigid and it was a good it was a good quality uh material but the problem is the sun could get through but the sun would refract and change the trajectory uh, you know of how you saw things so when a fly ball would come toward the outfield the outfielder would look up and the sun would the sun would come down in a bizarre trajectory because it would change the the dynamic of how sunlight came into the building and that made it almost impossible to navigate fly balls in fact some of the players Initially wore batting helmets when they were in the outfield, but uh, what they did is uh, they ended up painting the, that that lucite with a with a flat paint, so that it would uh, so that it, in essence it would allow it kept the sun out, and it would allow you to track the fly ball and be able to catch it without any problems. But that created a new problem. The sun couldn't, with sunlight not being able to get in, uh, it, it wound up killing the grass. Now, they did design, a, they did work with the folks at Texas A&M, uh, you know, the agriculture folks, and they designed a strain of grass that needed less sunlight. But it wasn't a strain of gla- grass that needed no sunlight. So that, that, that created a problem that led to the innovation of AstroTurf.
1: And we'll talk about that in a second, but let's go back. I mean, we're talking about some of the problems that came up when the Astrodome was first built, but let's recapture a, a sense for a second of just what a marvel this building was when it opened, both the structure of it to get it to stand up, and then inside, everything Roy Hofheinz added and, and put on in the building, including the big scoreboard, as you mentioned. Can you give us a sense of what fans saw and felt when they first went through those doors in April 1965? What did they see inside that building that they had Never seen at a sporting event before.
0: Well, one of the things they saw right out of the gate is when they were led to their seats, they they had cushioned, they had luxurious cushioned seating, like as though they were going to a Broadway show. Uh, it, It was, you know, it was like luxury seating, which, you know, was, was fascinating. And then when they sat down, they would see this scoreboard that was, that was actually wider th- than an entire football field, you know, end zones included, uh, you know, and it stretched the whole, you know, range of, of the facility. And it was just this huge, and you it, it used, it used thousands and thousands of lights, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of miles of, of wires and cables, and it, it it put on a spectacular show unlike any other. Now, in today's day, day and age with digital technologies, you know, the resolution would have looked, you know, the resolution of, of the original scoreboard was pretty pale in comparison to, to the the innovations today, but back then it was unbelievable. No one had ever seen a scoreboard this intricate, this, you know, and just, you know, this sort of awe-inspiring.
1: And even things like, I think you write about how the different levels of seats had different colors corresponding to what level or what what price uh, zone they were. And so just the color around the building, I mean, when you see pictures of it today, it's been stripped of everything inside and and it looks so gray and drab. Uh, But back then, the color and and the ushers with the astronaut outfits or the uh, field workers with the astronaut outfits, uh, it, it was it was entertainment
0: was and i think hophites was one of the one of the innovators that that recognized that sports could be entertainment and could be marketed as entertainment i mean he had you know the ushers and you know uh the people who worked in the restaurants and and you know the astrodome had restaurants which was an innovation in and of itself usually you know most ballparks up to that area had concession stands and you just you know go up get your hot dog and you know it was pretty standard bill of fare and he had restaurants with you know different menus so you know lots of different things that hot Heinz did so many things that were absolutely unique and hadn't been tried before
1: i'm alex rodriguez and i'm jason kelly from bloomberg this is the deal each week you're here is in conversation with business icons this show will explore deal making across sports media and entertainment That is a harsh lesson in business.
0: Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I
1: didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right, so there were historical events that you recount that took place in the Astrodome, the uh, greatest college basketball game of all time, many say, UCLA and Houston, the uh, Billie Jean King-Bobby Riggs tennis match um but then as you mentioned you know in the late 70s early 80s the building started showing some wear and tear and some of the initial magic had had worn off. In the late 80s, uh, owner Bud Adams of the Houston Oilers football team demanded changes to the Dome, threatening to move the team if they weren't uh, made. And the changes were made, and he moved the team a few years later anyway. But in the late 80s, it fell to, correct my pronunciation, Narendra Gosain, an architect who sort of took the mantle from Ken Zimmerman. And you worked closely, you and your co-author, Ken Womack worked closely with Gosain uh, in in doing this book. Uh, tell us about getting to know him and his relationship with this building.
0: Well, it's funny, but he was he probably knows more about the Astrodome, its structure, its history, you know, as far as the engineering history of it, as far as the architectural history of it, than any other than any other living human being. Uh, you know, Ken Zimmerman uh, did the engineering on it and probably knew more than anyone. But he passed the torch to uh, Narendra, and when he retired, Narendra took over that aspect. And uh, Narendra was great to work with; he was outstanding. He got us into the Astrodome, uh, and we got to walk around and see it. You know, even though it wasn't in use, you know, it, it was a it was a, a facility that you actually had to get had to get specific permission to enter, and we were able to, you know get around there the other thing he was able to do which was fascinating for us is uh, and we're, we're really indebted to Narendra on this is he was able to you know, go into the archives of Walter P. Moore and get so many of the Astrodome's original documents and original uh, you know, papers and as an example one of the things that was absolutely amazing was the blueprints and these blueprints were put. They were. They were on on this canvas. It was a thick book like thing that was that was a, you know, almost the size of a uh, you know standard boardroom table. Uh, they were very big, and you would flip them over. They were. They were like this canvas and they were each a different color, and and you could see, as an example, all the plumbing, all the wiring, all the, uh, you know, the different columns and the different, you know, and it was a fascinating thing to go through that, and Narendra would explain to us nuances, you know, as far as the engineering and design of the facility, and and we were we were able to develop a really good knowledge of the Astrodome as a result of Narendra's insights. Uh, as much as we were fascinated by the Astrodome. If not for Narendra, we wouldn't have been able to really put those chapters together that that talked about the engineering and and you know the amazing feats of engineering that were part of the uh, process. So, you know, we owe a lot to Narendra as far as you know just helping us put this book together in, in such a way that we we were able to sort of render what was you know very complex engineering. To, Something that I think the average person could understand, and and that was you know it took a lot of talking to Narendra and a lot of sort of you know back and forth discussion for us to be able to articulate those things in ways that would be approachable to someone who doesn't have specific expertise.
1: I think you write about how his eyes still light up when he goes inside the Astrodome and points certain things out, some of them perhaps that only he would ever notice, but you also write that it's kind of bittersweet for him because at least at the time, we'll talk about this this building's future, but at least at the time he anticipated the possible demolition of the building, and he would be tasked as an expert uh, who would be consulted on that and he would have to sort of oversee the death of of this uh, of this patient that he had cared for so to speak um, can you give us a sense of what that was like for him to anticipate uh, having to potentially prepare for the demolition of this beloved structure
0: yeah for, for him I mean he he was he was the person who did that structural engineering that that uh, you know allowed for you know the extra extra seating for uh, you know, the football team, you know, that that Bud Adams had, had demanded and it it led to the demise of the scoreboard. But he had to do some really clever things to make this work. It wasn't it wasn't like you just drop steel in and it's done. He he had to engineer it, so so he put his heart and soul into the Astrodome, and whenever there were issues, you know, whether they be, you know, structural preservation issues, whatever the case may be, you know, he, he was tasked with uh, follow-through, and, and, you know, for him, he was very passionate about the Astrodome, and, you know, he still is, but I, I just remember as an example, you know, he was telling us about how you know they they designed the the steel that was embedded into the ground they they designed a sort of you know corrosion resistant uh sort of design that that sort of used a battery to resist corrosion and and he when they dug it up he said it was amazing how the steel still looked pristine despite the fact that you know it had been in the ground for decades and so he he was very he was he was very, you know, passionate about the astrodome and if he you know, knowing the structure, knowing the the places where you would have to, you know, take down certain elements to, to bring the astrodome down, he would have probably been the the most important person in terms of the consulting in terms of you know, just explaining you're going to need to put, you know, the the dynamite here and here and here, or you're going to have to, you know, take this out first. And, you know, I know when we talked to him, he wanted no part of it. But being an engineer, he knew that he would have to step up if it was going to come down. And he was very happy when he found out that it wasn't going to come down, that it was going to be preserved.
1: All right, let's talk about the legacy of this building. And what's interesting about this is we can go back and appreciate how forward-thinking it was for Hofheinz and Zimmerman and the rest to bring about so many innovations. And at the same time, many sports fans today lament some of these innovations. Uh, AstroTurf has since been kind of widely disparaged as causing injuries at a higher rate. Uh, the natural grass and the scoreboard you mentioned. You know now the the jumbotrons in stadiums are often a real nuisance, and the skyboxes. You have a great take on that on how skyboxes have be, have come closer to the field, and newer stadiums have sort of priced the working class fan out of out of the stadium in a way that Hoffheinz would never have wanted. Um, so is it is it strange to to have to go back and and appreciate what was new and great about this building in the '60s, and also lament or wonder about? Uh, some of its legacy and and some of what it brought about to our sports landscape.
0: Absolutely, I mean, you think about the Astrodome. I think Hoffheinz's vision was it was it was he, he looked at you know how the town square was kind of eroding and and he thought about this as you know the Astrodome as being sort of a new sort of t- entertainment-driven town square that would allow people to get together and you know the pricing structure of the Astrodome originally you know allowed for the average person to get in and out of the Astrodome without too much uh, of a problem and uh, you know the skyboxes might have been expensive but you know they were used to underwrite the cost and sort of minimize the taxpayer subsidies that's kind of changed I mean you think about it you know now even that even the average seats are somewhat pricey and difficult for you know you know someone who works you know for a modest wage to be able to afford so you know that's that's changed dramatically now a skybox they were always sort of you know something that you know the, the more wealthy patrons you know went for so you know that probably hasn't changed but at the same time You know, what's changed with the skyboxes is I think they've become you know, they've become pretty opulent and the prices have gone up even more. I think everything's gone up quite a bit just because I think, you know, sports is so popular that the owners know they can get away with that. They can charge it and people will pay it.
1: And speaking of what owners can get away with, you you spent some time talking about public financing of stadiums, um, and you've written about this before. You you have a book called "The New Cathedrals" on the politics and economics of of sports stadiums. Um, so the Astrodome was publicly financed, but as you say, there were efforts made to allow the working class to still get in the building affordably, and to let the uh, skyboxes offset or underwrite some of that costs. Uh, Today, owners uh, not only hoard more of the um, use of the building and the value of the building for themselves, but they also use stadiums to threaten cities and say, we're going to move unless you come up with, with public funds, and there's a lot of scrutiny about whether that should be a high priority for municipal budgets. Um, this is what I want to ask you. Is it your, your book, The New Cathedrals, came out in the last 10 years, or it came out about 10 or 11 years ago. Do you detect any change that cities are getting more resistant to that idea that they should cough up taxpayer dollars to pay for these stadiums?
0: You know, I, I think th- I think there's there's some resistance. It's always there, but I'm not sure it's changed that much. I will say, I think I think what's what's happened is the political leaders and the owners have gotten more clever about ways to sort of disguise you know who's paying for what and and that's so as an example uh, you know i'll just give you one example naming rights uh... you know the name these naming rights agreements might be you know let's say you know uh, there's a twenty year naming rights agreement for uh, you know a hundred million dollars well what what often happens is that revenue is is put in the pot and looked at as the owner's contribution to the construction costs so you know in essence the owner's not paying anything but they are getting credit for ponying up construction costs so i i I think there's still you know the taxpayers are still funding quite a bit of it there are a few exceptions but even in those exceptions what usually happens is surrounding infrastructure gets paid for by the taxpayers, you know, and, and that's something that, um, you know, is, is part, is part of the dynamic as well. So, you know, it seems like there's always going to be, and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 50 or 100 years from now that this may be different, but at least for the foreseeable future, it seems like The cultural capital of sports and how important people consider sports within their community makes it such that, you know, there's always going to be a subsidy at this point.
1: While we're on this topic, since this is an area where you've studied and written a lot, I just want to ask you, are there simple reforms uh, and maybe not so simple reforms or steps that could be taken that you think would restore some of the power that uh, cities and citizens have when it comes to how these stadiums are built?
0: You know, there there are some things that could be done, but I'm, I'm not sure they ever will be done. So l- let me give you an example. I, you know, teams are owned by individuals, and individuals are allowed to, you know, in a capitalist structure, individuals are allowed to move their capital to whatever location they want. But the teams, the emotional drive for these teams' success tends to come from community members of the community. Uh, if communities could own teams, that would change things. But the bylaws of the leagues don't allow for that. So so that's one thing that could probably change. But I don't see that ever changing. Uh, I know the Green Bay Packers are sort of an exception to that rule. But they're grandfathered in. And the NFL won't allow community ownership of a team. It's got to be owned by an individual. And so, You know, some of the team owners are are very you know, wedded to their community, so, you know, the chance of moving is not too high. But there are, you know, there are other owners who I think would not mind moving teams. You know, I think of, you know, the the Spanos family moving the Chargers from San Diego, where they had a pretty loyal following, but the taxpayers didn't want to pay for this as luxurious a stadium as they wanted and that kind of put an end to them being in San Diego and they moved to Los Angeles. That hasn't really worked out too well for the Chargers even though they're playing pretty good football right now.
1: Yeah I remember reading about that and thinking okay maybe some people said see San Diego is giving us the model of how to resist uh, an owner threat but who, who knows if that'll really take hold.
0: Yeah. And and, I mean, you think about it, you know, they resisted and they lost their team. So, you know, that kind of lets you know the trajectory. If you do give resistance for long enough, it tends to move in that direction.
1: All right. So let's talk about what's next for the Astrodome. Uh, The Astros moved out after the 1999 season. It's been almost completely empty and almost completely unused since then, with notable exceptions, including housing uh, evacuees from uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005. Uh, But it's sitting there, and no one knows exactly what's going to happen or what should happen to it next. Um, In 2013, there was a referendum put before Houston voters, and this was seen by many as being decisive as to the building's future. Uh, What was on the ballot, and why did it prove to not be decisive?
0: Well, what happened is, uh, it, it was it was kind of at a time, you know, when it went up. It was it was up at a time when you know taxes had kind of gone up, and you know, on other areas. And in fact, I think good evidence that this probably was was sort of rolling against the tide is. You know, a referendum for you know a major high school football stadium in a Houston suburb, you know where they had a team that, that had you know won some state championships was defeated. So you know, think about Texas voting against a football stadium. Uh, you know, that's you know that shows you that that you know in that $213 hundred and thirteen million dollar referendum, they were fighting against a pretty tough. Political landscape at that time, uh, and so so it lost, and the result was that you know it just sat there for a while, and there was a there was a guy named Ed Emmett. He he was a judge in Texas, and uh, you know he pushed very hard to preserve the Astrodome, and he thought that you know because it, it was something that was already uh, built, it was already paid for, and it was something that you know, it could be a community asset, that it shouldn't be knocked down. And he he saw the historical value of it. And he did a lot of research and a lot of, uh, you know, and used a lot of his political capital to uh, to try to preserve the Astrodome. And, you know, a lot of things came up, but nothing really, you know, nothing really came to fruition until, uh you know, the county commissioners voted to approve a $105 million renovation plan. And what it did is it it creates, it creates created a sort of a tiered parking garage below. So, you know, where they used to play, the playing field is now going to be part of a parking facility. But then there would be all-purpose space above it, you know, sort of on a deck above it. And that would allow for... The, the parking space that the Texans want and that you know the 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 folks you know who run the stadium authority want. And it would also allow for uh, you know it would also allow for some all purpose space. So as an example, if if Houston got the NCAA tournament or a Super Bowl, you know you could have parties right next to NRG Stadium, you know the new stadium. And play in the, you know, and and essentially uh, do them in the Astrodome, and then you know, have the event in the uh, big stadium, the newer stadium later on. So you know, I think it gives Houston sort of another sort of uh, interesting uh, architectural structure that they can use for a good purpose. So so you know, it seems like it's going to work out okay.
1: Yeah, so your book came out in hardcover in 2016 and I detected some anxiety in the book about what the future would hold. I thought there were a couple points where you say the Astrodome may not uh, stand for much longer. And with this new edition you have a new epilogue that seems to me to be a little more optimistic. Um, And I guess in the intervening time, uh, there was a key designation as, I believe, a state historical landmark that helps protect the building. Um, And also, as you mentioned, this parking garage where, you know, it's easy to say, let's tear down an empty building, but it's harder to say, let's mess with anything that is generating revenue in the the form of of parking revenue. Um, So was I correct to detect that you were more optimistic in 2018 than you were when the book was first published uh, two years ago?
0: Very much so. Uh, You know, I... I I know Ken and I had talked about it, you know, when we put out the uh, original version, the hardbound, and and we thought that there was a pretty good chance the building was going to come down. We we just felt as though, you know, throughout the nation, the 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 general practices to knock the old building down. And you know, it's interesting, but part of part of the politics of getting a new building is saying enough disparaging things about the old building that it's no longer looked at as a community asset it's looked at as is kind of a problem that needs to be gotten rid of and what's interesting with Houston is that didn't happen quite to the same degree you know there were still people who wanted the astronomer to come down but there were still some folks in the community who were passionate about preserving it. And Houston, it's interesting, but Houston doesn't have a great history of preservation, but the Astrodome was one of the one of the facilities that uh, you know, enough people mobilized around that it looks like it's going it, to it in fact it will stand for, you know, several decades into the future. Uh, you know, what's fascinating about it is you know, it's going to be uh, Walter P. Moore again in the engineering. And Narendra has, has retired, so there's a new core of engineers. They have, you know, three folks actually, uh, you know, working on that. And Kirksey Architecture is doing the architectural work, which is fascinating in that it was George Kirksey who was the pioneer in terms of pushing to get Houston a major league franchise. So, you know, George Kirksey was, uh, you know, is a distant relative of John Kirksey, who's the uh, owner of Kirksey Architecture. So we've kind of come full circle in a a very odd way.
1: Okay, but I got to ask you about Ed Emmett and what happened to him earlier this month. Did you hear about his race?
0: No, I did not. I did not.
1: Well, I, uh, I'm sorry to break the news to you, but um, he got upset by a challenger named Lena Hidalgo to be judge of Harris County. Uh, this okay. this came absolutely out of the blue, um, and she won the race. She's the first Latina and the first woman to lead Harris County. And uh, hardly anybody had bothered to interview her while she was running because her her prospects seemed so... Uh, she seemed like such a long shot, but there is an interview where she questions whether preservation of the Astrodome is or should be a budget priority for Harris County. So uh, maybe enough has happened that those who advocate preservation, um, you know, it, that can't be turned around. Uh, but it's interesting how things like an upset election in, uh, for Harris County judge um, introduces new uncertainties that, that weren't there before the election
0: that's fascinating because you know I, there there have been a lot of uh, there have been a lot of unexpected upsets in in you know and and close upsets and as an example I, you know i just think of uh no one would have thought ted cruz was going to be you know on the uh you know in danger of losing his seat but you know it came pretty close <laughs> so um you know Emmett Emmett a, was a you know he's a pretty respected politician in Texas but I will say Houston is such a melting pot and I, one of the things that that is is amazing about Houston is is the diversity within the community so um it's interesting that you know uh, Emmett was upset in the election again. I wasn't aware of that, so that's a new, that's a new development that could have implications for the future of the Astrodome. But it's hard to know because I mean they've already you know they've already approved a 105 million. But is there the political will to rescind that, particularly when the the uh, you know, the engineering's already moved forward. The architects have already done some work, um, you know, and there are already plans that actually, you know, could work to the benefit of the, the various parties involved. So we'll see where that goes, but, but, you know, the loss by Emmett is something that may put the astronaut in a more precarious position than, than you know, I
1: realized. Well, and as you said, perhaps it would have been much more precarious if this had happened when the first edition of your book came out before all of this was already in motion and maybe irreversible. Yeah. Who, who knows? Uh, but stay yeah. tuned. But this does lead to my final question, which is, you mention in the book that I believe there are more Houstonians under the age of 18 than over the age of 65. Houston increasingly looks a lot more like its new county judge, Lena Hidalgo. And uh, this is a population that... Uh, doesn't have memories of seeing the Astros in the Astrodome, uh, looks at it and and sees the Astrodome as an eyesore. Um, how do you, how do you make the case uh, for preservation of this building? Um, to those who are skeptical about its current and future value?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think what has to happen is the folks who want to make that case have got to make a case for two things. First off, the historical relevance of how the Astrodome was, was significant in terms of being a cultural marker that put Houston on the map. That, that I think is one aspect, but I think it, it will not work unless you have the second component. The utility of having that structure in close proximity to NRG Stadium. Which is now sort of the new town hall for you know for the major events, the livestock and rodeo show, the um, Houston Texans, and all kinds of concerts and other events and activities. If um, if having a parking deck and all-purpose space that can sort of service and help the you know NRG Stadium continue to thrive is worthwhile. I think, you know, there's no danger of of, uh, it uh, being demolished. But if that case is not made for the utility of it, because, again, you're talking about a generation that probably is not as excited about, uh, you know, sort of saving uh, a structure uh, because they didn't grow up with it as the prior generation, then, you know, that becomes problematic. And we'll see where that goes.
1: Yeah, so you can't win this by saying, "Hey, it's really historically significant," or "Hey, there's a lot of nostalgia in there." You have to demonstrate a a pragmatic, a more cold blooded case, so to speak, as to as to what this building can can mean and do now.
0: I think you're right. I, I think that has to happen because I think I think for the older folks, you know, the the historic value is is still relevant. But as Houston, you know, is a new demographic, uh, you know, it becomes more predominant in Houston. I, I think the utility becomes a more important aspect of it. And, you know, having something that does have all that history becomes a selling point, but not as big a selling point as the utility, just because the change in demographics uh, makes it that way.
1: And briefly, I don't mean to push you on this, but do you think that preservationists such as as Emmett have satisfied those concerns? Does the current plan qualify by these metrics we're talking about?
0: I, you know, I think it does, but you know, I think the people in in Houston have to have to make that choice. I, I think. I, you know, as I, as I look at, you know, the, the parking was, if they had flattened the Astrodome, they were going to have to fill it in and put asphalt on it, and they were going to turn it into parking anyway. So by having, a, you know, by having decked parking so that you can put, you know, for at least as many cars in there, you've addressed that issue. But by having all-purpose space that can be used for a number of different things, uh, and, and some of them uh, rather creative. I think y- you've got the potential for, you know, some citizens to want to buy into it. But again, I think it's it's more something that the citizens of Houston are going to determine more so than more so than sports historians and uh, you know historians of architecture.
1: Well, Bob Trumpour, the book is the Eighth Wonder of the World. It is uh, out in a new edition this month, and uh, as we've said, there's a lot of history here. And yet, stay tuned because there's a lot to be determined. Uh, things are changing even as this book uh, hits. Uh, it comes off the presses and hits bookstores. So, Bob, best wishes for the new edition of the book, and thanks for your time today.
0: Hey, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
1: Bob Trumpour is the co-author with Kenneth Womack of the Eighth Wonder of the World the life of Houston's iconic Astrodome. Trump is professor of communications at Penn State University. He is also the author of The New Cathedrals, Politics and Media in the History of Stadium Construction. I'm Nathan Bierma. You've been listening to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.